we have been going through a series on the seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, this is the modern-day Turkey. And we, we see these uh, seven letters in the first uh, three chapters of Revelation, the book of Revelation. And in, uh, in these letters, we see Jesus giving a status report, a status report uh, to each of the churches, addressing uh, their concerns and encouraging uh, them to stay faithful uh, in the midst of a, a hostile world. So what we have been learning is that we see Jesus knows the true condition of any church. Jesus knows the true condition of any church more than any, you know, uh, any kind of uh, evaluation, church evaluation uh, that we can humanly do. More than that, Jesus knows uh, what is going on in, in, inside his church. And that's something that um, they, may be, they may not be aware of. And also Jesus calls them to, to, uh, to action. All right? And we are now uh, at the midpoint of that series. We have completed three churches. What's the first church? Ephesus. And then we had Smyrna. And then last week we had Pergamum. And we are now at the middle part of the seven churches, the fourth church, uh, Thyatira. So, but if you're American, Thyatira. <laughs> Thyatira. If you, are going, if you are to go and look for Thyatira today, you will have to go to a city in west-central Turkey named Akisar. Akisar. It is a bustling city today, full of shops of different trades. So it will have, you know, different kinds of trades in that place. It's not a tourist destination. Akisar is not a tourist destination. In fact, if you go there, you'll be surprised because there's almost no evidence of the ancient city, Thyatira. There you cannot see much of the ancient city. Except for just a small block in sort of in the middle of the city. So you have a modern city, a lot of trade, but there's a, a, a fence area uh, of ruins in the middle of the city. And that's where you will find remnants of what was then Theatera. The fact that very little was preserved could mean there's nothing much to see <laughs> in this place. There's no grand ar architecture happening there. It's not like Ephesus where there's a, a grand temple of Artemis. It's, like, it's not like Smyrna, a port city, which was considered beautiful even then. Nor is it like Pergamum, which, is, which sits on top of a mountain where there's a big amphitheater that you will noticeably know uh, that this is an ancient place with lots of history. Akisar, then Theatira, 
is your everyday ordinary town. It's a low-key working-class city now, meaning you don't go there for big businesses or for tourist attraction because it was a working-class city then. So Teatira will not stand out in all the seven churches with its, uh, with its cultural and historical background. It's not, a big, it's not a big city. You don't go there for vacation. You, don't, you go there to, to trade. And because this is a working class city, it thrives in trades, in jobs of, of workers in and out. And what's noticeable in this uh, city is that they have developed a system called trade guilds. Or what you will call, you know, in, in our context, uh, workers' association. So, kung sumakay ka ng tricycle, lahat ng tricycle merong toda. Yan. Ano ibig sabihin ng toda? What does toda mean? Tri tricycle Operators and Drivers Association. And if you don't know what toda means, that's what it means. <laughs> so, uh, a tricycle association, they, make their, they, they prepare their own groups. Um, you know, all groups will have that, or jeepney association, or an association of CPAs, or a, a gathering of IT professionals. They will develop uh, uh, an association of their same trade. And for someone who wants to work there, you must join an association. You must join a toda <laughs> because you operate in a particular trade. But the critical thing is in each association, they will promote and expect members to subscribe to a form of idol worship. If you are part of a trade association, it's associated with a god that they have to worship. You will have to give sacrifices and follow what is being done to worship that particular God. Which is really not out of place uh, in this uh, part of the world and uh, time in history because polytheism is a common thing during that time. Polytheism is not a, not a novel thing at that time. It's a common thing. But that may be problematic if you're a Christian. That may be problematic if you're a Christian. Because as you, are, uh, as you learn that Jesus Christ is Lord, that there is one God, it will be problematic for you to uh, show your allegiance to an idol, to a God of human making. And I say these things because... Uh, this context might help us understand Jesus' letter to the believers in Thyatira. And you will notice that this letter is the lengthiest letter of Jesus to all the seven churches. So like we have been doing, we will break this letter down again in the same way that we have been going through these letters. Number one, we are going to look at the commendations that Jesus had for this church. 
Number two, we are going to look at the criticisms or condemnation directed to this church. And number three, we're going to look and, and see the Lord's call to action for them. What is Jesus calling them to do? And lastly, we will look at the Lord's comfort. What is comforting them in these letters? But even though we follow the same structure that we have been going through in the previous letters, I hope that as we go through this particular letter, you will see what stands out is something that's very important to the Lord. Okay? I hope we do not miss this out. Because in this letter, we will discover what is important to the Lord. And therefore, as his followers, should be important to us as well. All right? So let's look at these four things. The commendation of Jesus to Theatira. Let me read again our text, verse 19. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. You know, the Lord commends them for their active and progressive faithfulness. They are not stagnant. They don't stand around. They're not lazy. The Lord commends them for that. They are active and progressive in their faithfulness to the Lord. And Theatira being a working class city, believers in the city are hard-working Christians. They are hard-working Christians. That's, that's sort of their personality. They, they really work hard. In other words, they are busy for the things of the Lord. They are busy for the things of the Lord. If you go to a church in Teatira, if you belong to the Christian community in Teatira, there are a lot of things happening in that church. They don't stand around. They're excited to do something for the community. They love gathering together. They attend all the, the small groups. They, they pray together. They're very active. That's their, that's their I, I believe, their personality. And if you read through uh, the book of Acts, you would know that we have been introduced to a native of Theatira already. In Acts 16, we were introduced to a lady named Lydia. So let me read in Acts 16, uh, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. So Luke is speaking here. Kasama niya sila Paul. We were supposed to, we, we, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a worker, a seller of purple goods. And this is uh, Theatira, that place is known for their dyeing trade. Not dying, Hannah, namamatay. Dying, yung coloring. <laughs> and so this uh, Lydia was supposedly a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, 
and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon them. Keep in mind, the book of Acts were written earlier, much earlier than uh, the, the book of Revelation. And so I would believe perhaps Lydia was one of the reasons why there is a Christian community in Tiatira. He is that she is that kind of a working class lady that would bring you know people into her household and have a Bible study there, perhaps a house a house church there. So keep that in mind that this is a hardworking city, hardworking Christians, but even though they are hard workers, faithful employees. Because really they are faithful to the Lord. They don't cheat. They, they show love and respect to the church and to others. Even so, they don't get to be recognized by the society simply because they're Christians. They don't stand out. They don't get recognized. They don't get promoted. They don't get some pay raise. Perhaps they might even miss some jobs because of their faith. They don't get rewards. They don't get awarded. They don't become prominent figures. They don't go viral on social media. But they keep going anyway. They stay faithful anyway. And this, at a time where being a follower of Jesus is a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage to become a Christian at that time. You know, in some contexts, even in our society, in, in a Filipino context, sometimes being a Christian is an advantage, right? Not for them. But not only are they hard workers in the faith, their faithful work grow as the years go by. You know, this is a kind of church that understands, I'm going to use a, uh, a big word, progressive sanctification. They understand it. They know that they play an active role in their sanctification. They don't just sit down and expect, you know, if I just uh, sit down in my home, you know, I will, the Lord will make me grow Christ-like. Their latter works are better, uh, exceed their first. That's what uh, Jesus says here. Meaning they grow in their sanctification. So friends, this is a church that knows that Christian life is not static. These are Christians who did not stop at John 3.16 as their memory verse. They are not bare minimum Christians. Let's keep that in mind. They are not bare minimum Christians. You know, I've listened to uh, uh, some of uh, Q&As in many conferences, and this question is um, often asked, what's the bare minimum for me to be a Christian? They are not bare minimum Christians. 
And Jesus knows it. Jesus commends them for it. This is a church where there are Marys and Martha, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Sometimes being a Martha in our, you know, in our Christian context is being, uh, has taken a bad reputation. Kapag Martha ka, that's a bad thing. Jesus commends them for it. And Jesus knows all of it, including the issues they don't want to deal with. And they have one big issue that needs to be addressed. This is where we go to the Lord's condemnation against them. Verse 20 says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Ooh, what's going on here? You know, just like uh, Pergamum, Theatira has a similar problem with false teaching. They have a similar problem with false teaching. But unlike in Pergamum, false teaching in Theatira has a prominent position. In Pergamum, there are some of them who, are, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In Theatira, that false teaching is in a prominent position. It is no longer in the minority, it is front and center in the church. And the one leading in this uh, condemnation is a woman named Jezebel. I hope no one here is named Jezebel. I hope you don't name your, your daughter Jezebel. Indeed, <laughs> Jezebel. Sorry. Jezebel. Who is this Jezebel? Is there someone in theater named Jezebel? Well, whether you're a Jew at that time or you're a non-Jew, you know what this name means. You might have learned this in your formal education, formal training as a Jew, or you might have heard the stories about the Old Testament Jezebel. And, this is very, and it's very likely that this is not uh, the woman's actual name, but her reputation. When Jesus says Jezebel, everybody knows it in Theatira. And Jesus is using the name of an infamous woman in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar, let me just backtrack that uh, a little bit. So Jezebel is, a queen, is the, one of the queens of Israel by virtue of her marriage to King Ahab. Also, don't name your children Ahab. <laughs> and together, they became on top of the list of the most corrupt, murderous, most immoral, idolatrous tandem in Israel's history. Jezebel and Ahab. Well, Jezebel is not an Israelite. 
She was the daughter of a Sidonian king, Ethbaal. Ethbaal. By that name alone, you know who they worship. They worship Baal. And you will all see this if you want, want uh, some reference. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 16 onwards. So Ahab took Jezebel for her wife and they turned the kingdom around. You know how they did it? Jezebel went on a murdering spree, killing the prophets of the Lord and replacing them with Baal and Asherah prophets. You know, you know the prophet who took a stand against Jezebel? Elijah. And even then, even though Elijah was successfully, uh, you know, has successfully confronted Jezebel, it took a toll on Ezekiel's life. She was on a run. And because of that confrontation, Jezebel made it her ultimate goal, her dream thing, to kill Elijah. That's why Elijah was on the run. Listen to how Jezebel was described by one scholar. Jezebel has stamped her name on history as the representative of all that is designing, crafty, malicious, revengeful, and cruel. She is the first great instigator of persecutions against the saints of God. Guided by no principle, restrained by no fear of either God or man, passionate in her attachment to her hidden worship, she spared no pains to maintain idolatry around her in all its splendor. That's how bad this lady was. And Theatira has their own version of Jezebel. They have their own version. No wonder the Lord reserved his lengthiest letter to this church. What was this Jezebel in Theatira doing that's so bad? Well, it seems like she has been successfully convincing the local congregation to practice idolatry and sexual immorality. It's not that bad, right? She's not killing prophets. How can it be similar to the Old Testament Jezebel? Well, she's turning... Uh, people who want to worship the one true living God and turn them into paganism. In fact, as you will see in the text, she's teaching what's called the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. And I want you to see one thing here. I want you to... Um, I want to clarify this. Uh, even though it says that uh, Jezebel was convincing them to practice idolatry and sexual immorality, unlike today's sexual revolution, sexual immorality 
at that time has a religious aspect to it. Pagan worship at that time included sexual activities in the temples. That's your act of worship. That's your sacrifice. And that's, what that meant is that they are essentially giving their hearts to another god. So this is not just Jesus calling them out of their sexual behavior, which is in itself uh, a deplorable thing. Jesus is calling them out of their idolatry expressed in sexual immorality. Essentially, what that means is that they're breaking the first commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And with that condemnation, we know that this is bad. We know, we know that this is deplorable. What did Jesus do to this Jezebel? What did Jesus do to this Jezebel? You know what he did? He gave her time to repent. He gave her time to repent. What? What an amazing Lord of the church this Jesus is. That he would extend his mercy even to those who oppose her. Repentance is the first offer, not judgment. You know, if it was us, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. <laughs> if it is just me, my first act would, to, would be to brand her a heretic, to cancel her, and to condemn her. Good thing I'm not the Lord of the church. The Lord of the church gave her time to repent. But she did not. And friends, this is how we distinguish error from heresy. When someone refuses to correct his or her ways after a call to repentance. We don't just immediately brand someone a heretic. You call them to repentance. And if the person repents, it's an error, not heresy. Because I, I, I make some errors. And if I repent from that, I can be corrected from my error. If I willingly do not repent and I refuse to be corrected from my ways, I am a heretic. That's what Jesus did to call her to repentance. And the next thing that Jesus says might even surprise you even more. Let me read verse 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. I will strike her children dead. I will strike her children dead. Parang nag-flip ng switch si Jesus. From mercy to judgment. And you might ask, how can a loving God be so harsh with her judgment? 
How can a loving God be so harsh with His judgment? You know, when this question is being asked in different, uh, uh, in different capacities, in different ways, uh, in, in, in different uh, phrasing, how can a loving God be so harsh with His judgment? You know, when I think of that question, we need to see and we need to realize that when we speak of God's love, typically, people normally mean Tolerance. Tolerance. How can, how can this God, the God of the Bible, not be tolerant? If He is loving, He must be tolerant. But let me tell you, tolerance is not love. Tolerance is not love. If I tolerate everything my son does, I am not a loving father. Tolerance is not love. So when we say, how can a loving God be so harsh with his judgment, we need to understand who this God is. Because God is not just loving. God is not just loving. God is love. Okay? Okay? He does not exhibit, exhibit loving behavior from time to time. God does not flip a switch from being merciful and loving to being harsh and judgmental. Okay? There's, no, there's no faces in the behavior of God. Ang technical term nito, if, you, if you're looking for, walang parts. There, there are no parts of God. That's parts that's loving, parts that's just, parts that's merciful, and things like that, and they don't combine into 100%. Technical term is divine simplicity. That God is fully just, fully love, fully righteous, fully holy. He does not exhibit loving behavior from time to time. His very actions are love. There is nothing that God does that is unloving. Let me repeat that. There is nothing that God does that is unloving. Double negative, no? Pero I, I know you understand. So, ipapositive ko na lang. Everything that God does is love. And so for Jesus to give this pointed ultimatum to uh, the false teachers in Thyatira and those who follow her, believe it or not, is a glimpse of that love. It's difficult to, uh, to wrap our heads around Jesus saying, I will strike her children dead as expression of love. But hold on. How can this be a glimpse of God's love? Because it is an act of love. Because true love does not rejoice in evil. True love will not let evil go unpunished. 
And Jesus is saying this because he expresses his love for those whom he called. Because he wants to preserve those whom God has called from further damage. If Jesus will tolerate this Jezebel and the, those who follow her, it will ruin those who are around that Christian community. And for the sake of love, God will intervene. God will intervene. And here's what Jesus says even more, and, and I want you to pay attention to this because this is the, for me, the most important thing that Jesus is saying. He will do this. He will intervene. He will make a swift judgment. And when this happens, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is not just for the sake of Theatira. This is the sake of all the churches, all the seven churches at that time, all the churches in the Roman world, and all the churches even today. Jesus is doing this so that all the churches will know who he is. Friends, this is the bottom line. The purity and holiness of the church is Jesus' top concern because God's glory among the nations and especially among his people is his most important concern. You know, we, uh, during the men's group, I asked this question. What do you think is the, if there's uh, something that is the most concern of God, Hypothetical question lang yun. What would be that most concern? What is God most concerned about? If you, if you are leaning towards you know, creation care and environmentalism, you would say, of course God is most concerned about the renewal of all creation, and that's right. If you say, uh, of course, God is concerned for the salvation of all humanity. That's also right. But beyond that, above that, you know what God is most concerned about? His glory. His glory. And you, we, can, we can see the echo of this. Uh, we can see the genesis, not really the genesis, but the, uh, the similarity of this when Jesus, uh, when God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, and let me read in Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. God is not saving Israel because they're good. God is not saving Israel because, you know, they, uh, he is the, his favorite community. God is doing that for the sake of his name. And I will vindicate my holiness of my great name. 
God says, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned among them. Israel was also a perpetrator here. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Jesus is making this judgment in Theatira because the holiness and the glory of God is the most important thing. Friends, as far as Jesus is concerned, the purity and holiness of the church is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for, it's worth protecting, and it is worth dying for. And for those whom Christ died for, he gives this call to action. So he, he calls those who followed this Jezebel to repentance. And if they repent, the Lord will forgive them. But also Christ singles out uh, another group in this uh, letter, verse 24. To the rest of you in Theatira, what's their, what are they doing? What are they not doing? Who do not hold the teachings of Jezebel, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, what's the call to action? I do not lay any, I do not lay on you any burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast what you have. Until I come. In other words, keep doing what you're doing. Stay faithful. You know, they're already doing something that Jesus approves of. They're staying faithful. They're doing something that the followers of Jezebel is not doing. You know what that is? They're not influenced by the false teaching. And the best way to not be swayed by false teaching is to immerse yourself with faithful teaching. And that's what these believers are probably doing. They stay grounded in the word of the Lord. They are not convinced with what this Jezebel is doing. And they stay true. You know what Jesus did not tell them? Jesus did not tell them to go heresy hunting. Jesus will take care of the false teacher and his followers. The Christians in Thyatira are just called to hold on, hold fast. In other words, Jesus is saying, Ako nang bahala dun sa troublemaker. I want you to stay true to my word. You know, if there's one thing that we need to emulate from the faithful Christians in Teatira, it's this. To be happy with the ordinary. To be happy with the ordinary. To roll up our sleeves, to do the faithful work week after week after week until Christ returns. 
You know, some of you might get tired with the routine of your work. You might say, oh, Monday na naman tomorrow. You might get burned out. You see the routine in your, in your workplace and you don't feel like it's going anywhere. And some of you even may feel like, ah, oh, Sunday na naman. I have to wake up again. You go, we go through this routine week after week after week. But we can be happy with the ordinary because this is accomplishing something in us that we do not see until Christ returns. So what will motivate these believers in Thyatira to hold fast, to stay faithful? What is their comfort? Well, just like what we have done in past letters, we look at how Jesus identifies himself in each letter, in each location, and see the source of their comfort. The identity of the one speaking is the source of their comfort and what is and how does Jesus identifies himself here? Let me look at the first verse in our text. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Friends, do you know this is the only time in Revelation that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God? The only time in Revelation that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. And he reserves this to the Christians in Theatira. And it's as if Jesus is telling them, the one speaking to you is the Son of God. The one who holds the ultimate authority. And for those intimidated by the influence of Jezebel in their midst, for those who are crushed by the demands of their workers' association, for those who see that Rome is where the power resides, to hear that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who is more powerful, more intimidating with eyes of fire and feet of bronze, than those who seemingly are powerful around them, that should bring their, them comfort. That should bring them comfort to know that who stands behind them and beside them is the Son of God. That brings them comfort. Not only do we see comfort in the one who speaks, he also brings this promise, this Son of God promises these believers that they will rule the nations. Verse 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. You know, again, for a Christian community who never experienced what it, is, what it means to be in a prominent position, it is comforting for them to know that there is a reality where they are given a place of honor. For a Christian community in, a, in the midst of a working class city that's not prominent, not known, not famous, and they live there in, in obscurity, for them to hear that the, 
the one who promises them, promises them to rule over the nation. There's a reality for them to be in a place of honor. Even if they don't get that honor in their society. Lastly, they not only get to rule, this is a, a great promise, they not only get to rule, they also get the ruler himself. You know, the last promise of Jesus, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. And when Jesus says that, he is referring to himself. He is referring to himself. San ko naman nakuha yun? Am I interpreting this too much? Well, Jesus says so himself in the same book, in chapter 22 of this same book, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The believers in Thyatira know that there's a son of God who rules over them. The believers in Thyatira is comforted by the fact that there's a reality that they will be in a place of honor. But ultimately, the believers in Thyatira know that they have the ruler himself as their reward. Friends, if you have the ruler of the entire universe as your reward, as your portion, as your promise, would you want or long for anything else? Would you rather have an iPhone 15 than the ruler himself? What's iPhone 15 compared to that, right? What's promotion in your work compared to that? As far as Jesus is concerned, and I'm repeating this, why does he give himself for this church? Because the purity and holiness of the church is worth fighting for, it's worth protecting, and it's worth dying for. Let me share what that means for us as a church and for us individually. I'm, I'm going to start with us individually. No, your purity and holiness is what Christ died for. You are worth dying for. We can pursue that. And as a church, that's something that we can aspire to and pray for, for the purity and holiness and faithfulness of the church. And this is something that we cannot do on our own, but through the empowering work of the Spirit. And lastly, you know, just like Thyatira, we may, not be, we may not be prominent even in our city. We may not be famous. We may not leave a lasting legacy. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I'm fine being an ordinary church. I hope just like Thyatira, 
we roll up our sleeves, do the work, hold on to Christ's name, and know that in him we have a place of honor because we have the ruler himself as our reward. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word for us today. Thank you for convicting us of what is most important for you, and that is the purity and holiness of your church because your name cannot be profaned. Lord, forgive us when we have been perpetrators of profaning your name, when we do not exude and exhibit the purity and the holiness of your people. Lord, we repent of our sinfulness. Lord, teach us, like Thyatira, to be faithful to your work, to roll up our sleeves, to do the work that you have called for us to do, to stay faithful to your calling upon us, and to be comforted by the fact that we have our ruler beside us, with us, through us. And that is enough. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.